Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Around the time my son was five or six, we were watching Saturday morning animated cartoons. And something called The Tick came on. And watching The Tick, which was about a superhero, about a group of superheroes, really, I quickly identified it as something that was made for me, not for him. There was no way a five or six-year-old kid was going to get a joke about a superhero called Bipolar Bear or Deflator Mouse. Um, and that happens all the time. That was my father's reaction when I was growing up when we would watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, which were, once again, full of references that only an adult would understand. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Cartoons have always been full of adult concerns. Uh, as much as they're for kids, they've always also been for adults. We'll tell you more about that after this news. Hi, we're talking about animated cartoons today. You know, season two of the Netflix animated series BoJack Horseman opens with a flashback of lacerating sadness, a primal wound delivered to the title character as a boy. This cartoon, that's what it is really, was described by the Washington Post as an incredibly dark and surprisingly nuanced meditation on depression, fame, family, and friendship. It's also very funny which raises the question of whether it's mostly a cartoon or mostly a tragic comedy in which most but not all of the players are clothed bipeds with animal heads and certain animal habits. Today on the show, we're looking at the history of animation, the history of the animated cartoon, and the degree to which something like BoJack Horseman, or, or pick your other one from the contemporary stable, you should pardon the pun, uh, of cartoons with very adult human sensibilities, that um, these aren't outliers anymore, and they're not even outliers historically. They're a natural expression of the transgressive, unsettling, and deeply challenging impulses that have coursed through animated cartoons since their invention. A little bit later on the show, uh, we're going to talk to Ralph Bakshi. Uh, in many ways, uh, everything that strikes you as profoundly modern in cartoons has been around pretty much since the very beginnings of cartoons. But if anybody ever succeeded in getting uh, cartoons and animation to take a really sharp turn, it might be Ralph Bakshi. You also will talk to Lisa Hanawalt towards the end. She is the producer and production de designer for BoJack Horseman, if you've watched that show. But we want to begin with kind of an overview. I mean, this is going to be a lot to cover in, in one show. This is like 10 shows we're doing right now. But we're going to do an over, uh, overview of the genre with uh, Maureen Furness, uh, Program Director of Experimental Animation at California Institute of the Arts and founding editor of Animation Journal. She's the author of A New History of Animation. Also with us, Paul Wells, Director of the Animation Academy at Loughborough University. I bet you I just said that wrong. Uh, Loughborough University in England and the author of several books, including Animation, Sport, and Culture. Um, Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello. Paul, how did I do the uh, how well did I do with the name of the university? Well, not bad. It's it's Loughborough. Loughborough. Actually, I but, see. but people have done Loughborough as well. So <laughs> that, that wasn't so bad, I didn't think. So, yeah, I'm about in the middle then. Um, yeah. All right. So, um 
Uh, Maureen, you know, in some ways, this myth is so stale that it shouldn't have to be exploded anymore. But uh, we know that cartoons are for children, but they're also profoundly not for children. And probably we all think we know when that started. I mean, I grew up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons with my father, you know, and Fractured Fairy Tales was another one of the Jay Ward products in which little Jack Horner uh, pulled a plum out of a pie and said, what foods these morsels be? Well, that is certainly not a joke directed at a child. Um, And and so we all think we know when that started. But I, I think Correct me if I'm wrong. The reality is it started when cartoons started. That's when cartoons started to be partly for adults. Well, um, the history of cinema in general, you know, is one that is made um, originally for adult audiences. And if kids were watching it, then so be it, but not necessarily aimed towards them. Um, From the very beginning, um, there were all kinds of uh, lewd jokes and, you know, uh, innuendos and references that, uh, that kids might not get, but adults surely did. Um, and Paul, this also, um, this is skipping a little bit ahead in the story, but this also put the animators into conflict with sensors, various kinds of sensors, sensors whether there was the Hayes Code or something else around. And, and part of that is, I, uh, I think, because it's pretty easy to figure out what one, two, or three actual human beings are doing on film. But sometimes there's things going on in cartoons which require a little sort of visual and mental decoding. You, you could sneak something into a cartoon that would be hard to do with live action. So how have things gone between animators and their sensors? Oh, sure. I mean, the, the whole kind of thing about the people just forget about uh, making animated cartoons is they're made by adults, you know. And so at the end of the day, yeah, they're going to speak to particular kind of audiences like children and, you know, set up particular gags and, and so forth. They're going to be perhaps appealing to them. But, you know, adults are adults. They're going to kind of smuggle in kind of things that they're interested in and cultural preoccupations that they're aware of and jokes that kind of uh, amuse their own kind of uh, their own uh, animator friends or their, or, their, or the communities they're part of. And so... Inevitably, you know, either either whether it's in the early Mickey Mouse cartoons, you know, just just others were seen as kind of like, you know, hey, just a minute, you can't show others, you know, but I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> cows have others, but nevertheless, this was interpreted by the censors sometimes as as being a little too kind of fleshly, a little too maybe sensual or sexual, you know. And later on in the, the Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, they deliberately put in more excessive gags on the basis that the censors would cut them and they could keep other ba- gags in that were also adults. So. So, you know, there's always this dialogue going on because adults are adults and they're playful. And when they've got uh, a medium like animation to use, they can use it in all sorts of diverse and complex ways. And that's why sometimes it's a very complex thing to read because adults see it one way, children see it another, and different people see different things at different times. Uh, Maureen, one of the things we looked at to get ready for this show was a a cartoon from the 1920s, essentially a silent cartoon. I have to be careful about how I even say the name of this cartoon. It's Everready Harton, I guess. Um, You can maybe guess what uh, Everready, that's the name of a character. You can perhaps guess how he happens to be uh, Everready. But this is an unbelievably sexually explicit cartoon from the 1920s. But is that, I mean, I assume that every single time there's uh, a McLuhan-esque shift in, in media, it's accompanied by one or two things, and, and porn is always one or two, two of these things, or at least sexual depictions. I'm sure after they made the Gutenberg Bible, you know, two or three iterations later, a movable type was being used for some kind of sexually explicit thing. Is that just sort of wired into us, or are co- cartoons especially attractive in that way? 
Well, I think everybody that's um, you know in the media business realizes that sex and violence have always been good sellers. They've always attracted people, so why not? In fact, if you look back just at the regular um, history of cinema um, from the earliest years, there was um, well one of the the films that was really scandalous was called The May Irwin Kiss, where these were live actors, but it was just a very short segment where they kissed on screen, and it was so scandalous that you know churches were calling for boycotts and censorship and all kinds of things like that. There were also a live filming of, you know, hoochie-coochie dancers and, and all those sorts of things. So it shouldn't be surprising that, you know, in the 1920s that a bunch of animators got together and they were making a film for one of their colleagues, um, Lindsay McKay, and they used this character who was ever ready for a sexual liaison. Um, and he, you know, went through the wilderness looking at, uh, not wilderness really, but at the <laughs> local area, and he, he saw animals and other uh, creatures uh, you know, doing their thing, and he was very anxious to do his. So. Right. It's sort of a pre-apic uh, Robinson Crusoe story. Um, and and so by the 1930s, we're going to play a little bit of this right now. Most people know the uh, character Betty Boop, but you might not might know it from sort of maybe secondary uses uh, of Betty Boop. I'm going to set this up a little bit. So this is from a cartoon where Betty Boop uh, is being essentially – uh, sexually harassed by the owner of the show that she's in, uh, a big, bulky, leering kind of guy who's basically asking Betty Boop to put out. Uh, and if she doesn't, uh, she's not going to have a future in the business. So let's hear a little bit of that. <laughs> I mean, beauty last. Do you like your job? Well, I think if I were you, I'd go so. You better come up with me tonight and have some dinner. You mean? No. Right, so Paul Wells um, taking one's boop boop a doop away uh, could mean any number of things. I think it, here it refers at least to a, some kind of a deflowering and perhaps also the end of her her voice in show business. But I mean, this can't be a cartoon that's intended for a child, right? This has to be uh, an expression of adult anxieties in, in kind of a comic way. Well, it, it is and it isn't, you know. And I, I think it, one of the kind of things to look look to is the kind of ambivalence of sort of Betty Boop herself you know there's this kind of sexual you know sort of figure but kind of played out in a childlike sort of way and so there's this always this kind of very ambivalent kind of crossover there that's sort of half appealing to a kind of innocence but half appealing to the kind of uh, you know the more subtextual things that, that people people get into it. I don't think there's any doubt that you know that the Fleischers you know were, were, were very kind of adult in the in their outlook and, you know, very urbane and very urban in, in the way in which they addressed, you know, race, sexuality, ethnicity, all sorts of things that were the preoccupations of American culture. And I, I just think that they, their, their films anyway um, were, were films that, that were, were quite happy to address an adult audience. They were interested in science and technology. They'd done other films that had referred to the real world, to, to, to science, to, you know, to space and so forth. And they, they had big eclectic... Uh, you know, uh, interests. And so the Betty Boot films really were, were, were bound to be uh, of a more adult nature, and there's no doubt they were inflected very deliberately with, with sexual imagery. But it was partly them, I think, playing with the medium and partly them playing with the kind of mixed nature 
pressure of the audience that they perceived. And in that, I think they were advanced. I think they saw that there were many kinds of audiences for a cartoon and that they could play with, with those ideas. Um, in America, Maureen, it, it ceased to be uh, a completely level playing field at a certain point with the institution of the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code was this unbelievably restrictive, and I would say also unconstitutional, um, set of of rules for not just for cartoons, but for live action movies as well. Howard Hawks had to live with the same set of rules, essentially, that the people who made Woody Woodpecker did. Um, and, and so these rules, you know, they not only forbade people enjoying, you know, amorous experiences, but uh, also uh, anybody kind of getting an upper hand on the police. Uh, I mean, there were all kinds of rules. And, and I would imagine, I mean, the people who are attracted to animation in the first place tend to be kind of mischievous, slightly overgrown adolescents to begin with. I would imagine that that was just, in a, in a way, an invitation to them to see what they could get away with. Well, yes. Um, the thing is that most people don't realize that film was not covered by freedom of speech until um, 1952, actually. And so um, during the time from the late teens onward, it was subject to censorship, just like, um, I guess, you know, any other business. It was considered to be a, a business pure and simple is what it was called. And um, after, the, um, after 1934, when the um, production code was more strongly enforced, most of the emphasis was still on feature films, live-action feature films. And so animation did get censored, not as, um, not as much as um, the live-action uh, counterparts did. Uh, so you're, you are right, but uh, the thing is that I think there was a lot of self-censorship, you know, things that people just agreed to do, like Betty Boop's skirt got lowered so that her you know, garter wouldn't be showing anymore, cow's udders got removed, or they were wearing clothing, you know, as Paul was saying. Um, and so these kinds of things were largely coming from within the studio, but there were films like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, when it came out, was censored um, partly because of depictions of um, scary content that in England was, was thought to be too much for children. And also other films like um, Dumbo, for example, you know, it had drinking uh, and the little elephant gets kind of tipsy and everything, but yet it was allowed to um, go through because it wasn't seen as being, you know, as as uh, influential as it might be if it were, for example, a live-action film where someone got drunk and was enjoying it. I would go so far as to say that the pink elephants on the parade sequence in Dumbo is more than somebody getting a little tipsy. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hallucinogenic. There's, it raises some questions about whether alcohol is the only culprit here. It's so <laughs> incredibly uh, hallucinogenic. Well, that brings up another thing. As long as we're on Dumbo for a second, you know, um, one of the most problematic things in Dumbo are the crows. The crows are, from an animated point of view and from a lot of other points of view and from the point of view of the song that they sing, they're great. They're just fabulous. But they're also kind of crypto racist, right? These are sort of black crows speaking in dialect. And this is one of the areas where, as we look back on animation, Maureen, we, we get in a little bit of trouble, right? Uh, or, or, or at least we have to struggle a little bit with sensibilities. Well, it's true. And, and images that maybe played okay for many, I'm sure not all, but many audiences back then, uh, today people are much more sensitized to, so they don't always play um, in the same way uh, in, for a contemporary audience. Um, and so, Paul, the other thing that um, gets sort of um, 
uh, I guess, satirized or mocked or played around with these days is, you know, towards the end of the Hayes Code and as we're moving into other periods of animation, you know, animation got pretty violent. And so these days, of course, Bart Simpson and Lisa Simpson watch the Itchy and Scratchy show, which is pretty clearly Tom and Jerry, which is about these two animals trying to kill each other. But in fact, I mean, there were, if you look at the Warner Brothers cartoons and Tom and Jerry and stuff like that, that at a certain point, they really did get you know, in, in a cartoonish way, um, violent in a way that might not seem all that appropriate for children. Can you say a little bit about sort of violence in the golden age of those cartoons? Well, it's, I mean, it, it's a very interesting one. I mean, so sometimes, as Maureen was saying, I mean, kind of sometimes it was kind of uh, an internal response to that. I mean, like Chuck Jones, for example, when he made the later Tom and Jerry cartoons, uh, you know, he, he kind of took out all the excessive violence because he thought that that was inappropriate, and he made Tom and Jerry thereafter, you know, a much more kind of sentimental and saccharine. And, of course, they were really unpopular. People didn't really like the Chuck Jones Tom and Jerry cartoons because they weren't violent and they weren't excessive. And I think one of the kind of key issues about the violence debate, which was particularly heightened in the kind of 50s as well, when the kind of all the anxiety around comics also emerged, that there was these great harmful things that were happening to children, was that people started to look at it. They actually started to do sociological studies of, of responses to cartoon violence. And, of course, you know, uh, most, of the, most of the kind of people who were investigating it then came up with the idea that, that, that children actually, you know, uh, were, were not affected uh, either way by the idea of whether cartoons were violent or whether they were non-violent. What they, what they found was that they could see the difference between live-action violence and real violence, and, and, and that played out in cartoons. You know, children were acknowledged to be more sophisticated viewers than perhaps people gave them credit for. And so, you know, the, yes, they were excessive, and they were at the, the extremes of, of, of slapstick, but in a certain sense, probably everybody, everybody knew that and embraced the humor in that rather than the kind of real-world effects. Yeah, I mean, we could even make a sort of Bruno, Bruno Bettelheim argument that, that violence exists in the world and children are going to process it somehow, uh, either through fairy tales or cartoons or, or, or whatever. Well, you know, one way to um, outgrow your reputation, at least temporarily, as a subversive genre is to place yourself at the service of the state. Uh, let's hear a little bit uh, of Bugs Bunny uh, from World War II. I should say there's uh, some more of this kind of crypto racism uh, that you're going to hear uh, in this clip. So here's Bugs Bunny. Hundreds of them. This calls for strategy. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Get them while they're cold. Get your ice cream cane. Here you are. Here's yours, bull eggs. Here, one for you, monkey face. And don't shove this plenty for all. Here you are, slant eyes. Everybody gets one. Well, that's that. So that was exploding uh, ice cream bars that were being uh, uh, handed out to unsuspecting uh, Japanese. Um, and so, Maureen, there is a way, I think, that cartoons are ahead of the culture and behind the culture at the same time. Here, of course, this is for propaganda purposes. You could do or say almost anything under those circumstances and not get uh, too much pushback. You're in the middle of a war. But, you know, I mean, cartoons maybe were one of the last places where, say, an Asian person could be depicted in a kind of buck tooth. Uh, you know, very slit-eyed kind of way. That that that. I guess that's why we call it cartoonish, right? Well, yes, but also keep in mind that the Japanese were at the same time as they were our enemies. There was also many, many Japanese people living within America and uh, with internment camps and the racism that was shown to them. It's a very um, difficult, you know, thing to discuss because, um, you know, whereas Germans and Italians were more integrated 
at least in a visual sense, into American culture. You know, it was harder to tell a German from somebody who was another kind of Western European uh, background. With the Asian uh, citizens, it was, you know, then they were largely lumped all together. Um, you know, they were automatically suspicious, and that was part of the reason for the actual internment camps, that, you know, you couldn't trust people uh, that were of uh, Japanese descent. Um, one of the films... Um, from uh, there's a, there's well, there's a number of films. Tokyo Jokyo uh, is one example where they're um, taking um, a look at you know making fun of Japanese culture and and it's all done for humor supposedly. But a, a Fleischer film called Japa Tours depicts a Japanese man who is a regular American businessman and then all of a sudden converts over and uh, to uh, you know be an enemy of the of the government and steals big planes and wants to be a kamikaze and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Um, we're going to take a break here. Uh, we thank uh, very much Paul Wells, director of the Animation Academy at Loughborough University in England and the author of several books, including Animation, Sport, and Culture. Um, on the other side of this break, you're going to meet somebody that you probably already know in a certain way. You're going to meet Ralph Bakshi. All right, we're back. We're talking about, I mean, we're ambitiously talking about the history of animation in 49 minutes. Actually, less than that, because we're going to do a little bit of, of public radio of, of fundraising here, too. But uh, we are talking, I think, very specifically about the way in which there's kind of a myth that cartoons are for kids, right? That they've never really been strictly for kids uh, in lots of different ways. Uh, pick a time. Uh, I did watch Rocky and Bullwinkle with my father. My father thought things were funny that I didn't think was fun, were funny. I w watched The Tick, uh, an animated series. Uh, with my son when he was five or six years old. Uh, I was laughing hilariously at things that he completely didn't get. There's often things like that. But then there are cartoons that are really not uh, meant to be watched by children at all. Some of them even get rated X. Uh, we're going to talk about that right now. Uh, staying with us is Maureen Furness, Program Director of Experimental Animation at the California Institute of the Arts and founding editor of Animation Journal, author of A New History of Animation. And joining us is a legend. I think that's fair to say. Ralph Bakshi, animator writer and uh, director of animated and live-action films and TV shows, uh, including Fritz the Cat, Coonskin, Heavy Traffic, and much more, including Mighty Mouse, The Further Adventures. We have to talk about that. Um, but, um, well, Ralph Bakshi, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Hi. Hi. Um, your story doesn't begin with Fritz the Cat, but let's begin it there anyway. When you made that uh, and using source material from, from our crumb, were you consciously trying to take animation in a direction it hadn't been in before? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's no question about it. I had, uh, I had the written screenplay of Heavy Traffic that I wrote that I could not sell because it wasn't part of a book or a comic book. You know, the whole thing in New York or in Hollywood at that time was, do you have a, a, a property? You know, so this comic book that sold 25,000 copies for the Cat, I bought that. I loved it, and that was enough for them to say it had a prior audience, and I made the film. Um, um, I was absolutely after adult animation. I, you know, the, I had grown up with Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. I had grown up in the 50s going to, you know, Birdland and jazz clubs. My whole life was anti, uh, anti you know, as part of the culture of the times, um, abstract expressionism, all this expressing oneself was very important to me. 
um, as opposed to just making money, which was that all the other animation studios were trying to do desperately, and why Disney never budged off of what he was doing, even though he did it very well. Um, so I knew exactly what I was after because animation was my art form, you know, and I've always played animation as my art form. That's why I didn't do Fritz too after it made $250 million. Well, that's to date. Uh, we made it for a million dollars. I was also trying to prove that animation doesn't have to be as slick and as beautiful as everyone in the industry said it had to be to become successful. I was more in, to me, it was more important that you get something down on paper and you express yourself. Much more important than the technique. Of course, I would love to have perfect, beautiful animation. What animator would not? But I wouldn't let that stand in my way of not making the film, which is why I accepted a million-dollar budget. And with a million-dollar budget on the film, which was no money at all, people left me alone, and I knew they would. <laughs> the cheaper I made it, the more they thought I was an idiot. So I could do whatever I want. Um, so, um, yeah, I knew exactly what I was after, there wasn't, uh, which was part of my time. I wasn't that big a deal to me. In How? other words, it wasn't that revolutionary to me. What else would a guy make if he's involved in the 1960s and 70s? Well, how uh, how difficult was it to get the movie seen? I mean, it's hard enough to get the movie made. How how difficult was it to get an X-rated animated um, uh, film to its audience? Well, I <laughs> good question. You know, my, I'm an incredibly lucky guy. This is a true story. Maybe, you know, if you're pushy enough, you're luck will come. Okay, first of all, I went to Warner Brothers, and they financed 20 minutes of the film. They got interested. But of course, when I pitched the film to them, I pitched it as, you know, Chuck Jones, satiric cartoons, you know, I'll, I'll allude to a few things. I'll, you know, they'll touch on this subject and that, but basically, it'll be cute. So they gave me $250,000 to do 20 minutes, mm -hmm. and they, they wanted to distribute the film. So then, but when I got the $250,000, instead of doing a safe sequence, what I wanted to do was do a very tough sequence. Because even if they didn't do the film, I at least would have the tough sequence done. And in those days, nothing like it, what I was trying to do was done. Um, so I, I opted to do the big birth of the sequence when she's chasing Fritz around the drunk yard. Um, and all kinds of stuff happens. I'm ashamed. At 79, I'm ashamed to talk about it on radio. <laughs> but in Good. those days, in those days, I took this piece of film back to Warner Brothers, about 40 guys in the screening room. And they saw this black crow running around with a big breast and, you know, try, and Fritz and Junkyard and all this stuff going on mayhem and sexual, you know, no, not in the windows, right there on the screen. And the lights went up and it was dead silence. <laughs> Everyone got up and walked out and they said, you're fired. <laughs> now, the producer, Steve Krantz, at the time went ballistic because he didn't know what I was doing. And he could not believe that I did that tough sequence. So I shrugged. On the plane back to New York, I was he was screaming at me every five minutes. This is a true story, so help me God. I would get off the plane, and he's still screaming. We had a, on, there was a Fisk building on Broadway and 57th Street in New York. So we found that's where the office was. We get back to the office, he's still screaming. We're in the elevator, he's still screaming. So this guy standing there, this little weird-looking guy, says, what's he screaming about? So I did this great piece of film. Warner Brothers threw me out. And he hates me, my producer. He's right here. He's a producer. 
I mean, this is the kind of attitude I had at 28, 29, right? I'm kidding around because to me, life is fun. Right. He says, he says, well, listen, I'm a distributor. I'm, I'm an office right under you. My name is Jerry Gross Animations. Now, who is Jerry Gross Animations? They just did two massive big hits. Badass Sweetback and Johnny Get Your Gun. They were the hottest young independent in those days distributed in the industry. In other words, so I went into this guy on an elevator who goes, I take the film, we both go to his office, he looks at the film, he says, I'll finance it. All right, and, before, you, so, before you keep going, we're going to run out of time. I, I now know I want to do a whole show with you, Ralph Bakshi, so we can get all these stories told. We're going to run out of time. I get a thousand things to say. I know. That's what, I that's what That worries me. No, you're not done yet. I need you for something else. <laughs> but but I, I, I want to just quickly go to Tell Maureen. Me, I, got a few more. I know you got a million more. I, I want to go to Maureen for just a second and say, you know, one th- question that I have for you as a film historian, Maureen, is I feel as though – you know, rather than the animation really kind of turning a corner and going in a whole new direction as a result of, of Fritz the Cat and, and all the Bakshi stuff that follows, it feels more like Ralph just kept making these amazing movies like Fritz the Cat, Cat in Heavy Traffic. Um, and I don't know, was, was, was the rest of animation following him or was it on a, like a 20-year delay? Well, there were uh, examples of films that were coming out that were much more geared towards uh, what they call like the youth market, which was uh, more of an emphasis after World War II in general. But by the 1960s and 70s, films like Yellow Submarine, um, The Point, um, certainly Fritz the Cat was in there, Fantastic Planet, a French film, mm-hmm. uh, Watership Down from the UK. These were all films that had themes and content that you know, were uh, probably too challenging for the average really young viewer. So there were um, examples. It was often quite hard to find the right market for them and and um, distribution and exhibition and so forth. Ralph, I do feel as though the thing that you did that caused a huge explosion in uh, in animation on television was the revival uh, of Mighty Mouse. And I know you've got stories about that that, once again, could constitute an entire show. But this was, you know, a thing where you were bringing in a lot of young, ambitious animators, the kind of people who would go on to create a lot of stuff for Adult Swim. And, and I think inspiring uh, a lot of people, maybe like Ben Edlin, to, to do The Tick later on. Maybe you could just say a little bit about what that project was. Mighty Mouse had been one thing. You'd worked on the original Mighty Mouse, but this was a very different thing. Well, let me go back a second. I'm sorry. I want to discuss what was very important to me, and I want to use this opportunity to clear up what is most important to me so we can clear up all all of this once and for all as far as my films and what the difference was. Look, the difference is, I treat animation as an art form. I I am really not interested in what the audience thinks of my films. I'm only interested in what I have to say and what I have to explore about myself in my films. And I hope they will come and see it and love it. But, you know, today, if I was to make a film, I would do a film about black guys being shot in their cars for their taillights being busted, people being deported for being in this country for 20 years and the kids being citizens. I mean, I go right to the heart of what is wrong with what we do and I try to make a movie about it. Wizards was a cute movie. Supposedly it turned out to be about war and peace and destruction, heavy traffic. Coonskin was about black racism and how we treat black people. So my attitude was to go right over the top and not and try to get away from 
middle grounds and innuendos and films that allude to what might be happening, and then they call those films adult. There are many adult films being called adult today that are adolescent. You know, sexual and bad behavior is not an adult film. I call that an adolescent film. Um, adult film, I got the moniker for adult because all there was was Disney. Um, so I'm saying that animation was my art form. I didn't care too much about playing games. And I try to make films as long as I could that describe how I feel about what is going on in America. End of sentence. And when I got tired, I would do Lord of the Rings for a breather. And then I'd go to Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse was done because I was tired, burnt out, beat up. You know, it was very difficult making these movies with the way the companies treated me after they saw it. They didn't expect it. And I guess they didn't expect it because I, when I pitched in the movie, I made it sound much softer than it really would be. So I was able to get it done. Because I knew they wouldn't do it if I did it the other way. Um, Mighty Mouse was a bunch of young talent that I ran into, John Chris Felucci and all the guys now at Pixar and everything, just out of school and everything. And they were very, very great. They were all hanging around my studio begging me to do something. All so right. I decided to do Mighty Mouse because right, I loved it. We, we can't tell the whole Mighty Mouse story right at this second. Ralph Bakshi, we're going to have to do a whole show because you have too many stories, Ooh. and they're all great. Uh, thanks so much for right now. We do have to take a break. We're going to end with a little bit of Fritz the Cat talking about uh, education. Uh, let's uh, also thank Maureen Furness. Uh, she's the author of A New History of Animation. You think learning is a really big thing, and you become this big intellectual and sit around trying to out-intellectual all the other big intellectuals. You spend years and years with your nose buried in these goddamn tomes while the world is passing you by. All the stuff to see and all the kicks and all the girls are out there and me, a writer and a poet who should be having adventures and experience in all the diversities and paradoxes and ironies of life and passing over all the roads of the world and digging all the cities and towns and, and rivers and the oceans and making all of them shit. Oh, God. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is on loan to SpongeBob. The part of Bill Curry was played by Boris Badenov. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're doing the show about uh, animation and particularly how uh, new sensibilities get folded into animation and animated cartoons all the time. And when Josh Nalea first proposed doing the show, I had two basic requests. One of them was uh, if we could possibly get Ben Edlin, the creator of The Tick, on, I would love uh, to talk to him uh, because for me that was one of the kind of watershed moments of seeing a whole bunch of ideas handled in animation in a way that I hadn't before. And you can think you have your own list, right? I, I grew up with those Jay Ward cartoons. Those were incredibly important to me. Um, I, I think Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a kind of a watershed moment uh, in terms of uh, a new kind of postmodernism. Uh, the Tick was a big deal for me. But my other request was Bojack Horseman. To me, if anybody's doing anything really new or going to a new place right now with animation, and I don't, I don't see everything, obviously, or even, not even close to that, but uh, Bojack Horseman is uh, that thing and going to that place. And what is that place? Before we even bring our guest aboard here, let's hear uh, a little bit. Just uh, play that uh, C1 clip there, Wolfie. So you're the quote-unquote person singular that everyone's so crazy about. What have you got figured out that I don't? Um, adult stuff? Yeah, I'm not seeing it. But that doesn't matter. Not everything's about me. And maybe I am a little jealous. 
not because I actually want to date Princess Carolyn anymore, but just because I don't like the idea that I can't. I guess I just assumed I always could, but I made a lot of bad decisions. Not just with her, with, with everyone, really. You know, Princess Carolyn was right. You are a good listener. Thanks! You know, sometimes I feel like I was born with a leak. And any goodness I started with just slowly spilled out of me, and now it's all gone. Life is a series of closing doors, isn't it? <laughs> Inspiring words. Uh, that's uh, Bojack Horseman himself talking. He is a, a horse, but like uh, all of the animals in this series, and the series includes both people and animals living and interacting side by side. The animals tend to be bipeds, though. They wear human clothes. They have animal heads. They often have uh, animal habits as well. Uh, joining us now is Lisa Hanawalt, pro- uh, producer and production designer of the Netflix animated series, Bojack Horseman. Welcome to our conversation. Hello. Thanks so, for having me. So one thing that I, I do occasionally when I try to explain to people what this series is or why they should watch it is I, I guess, you know, when you're trying to get a friend to watch something, you do sort of an elevator pitch. Although my elevator pitches for BoJack Horseman aren't very good. Um, <laughs> it's a hard thing to explain to people. You, maybe you find the same thing. What do you tell people? Um, I tell them that it's a, an absurd um, but also really dark uh, comedy um, with animal people. And regular humans intermingling. And I mean, it, it also is a series that is more comfortable than anything that I can think of in the world of animation with really lacerating personal pain. I mean, season two yeah. begins with a childhood flashback that's like Citizen Kane or something. I mean, the primal wound that you're seeing to Bojack Horseman as a little boy horse is, you know, I mean, it really is an agonizing thing to behold. And I, I guess, I mean, is that some, something that you guys talk about? Like how far out on the thin ice uh, of emotional trauma can we go? <laughs> Uh, I think we just want to push it and take it to new places, um, not for the sake of shocking the audience, but just because uh, it's it's interesting to explore those things. Um, like an absurd and funny and ridiculous cartoon with, with stupid animal puns in the background. It's nice to have a balance of those elements in a show. Right. And I think the show, maybe more than other animated cartoons, asks that question. How far into the uh, woods of emotional pain can you go and still reel, reel your character back in and be really funny? I mean, within two or three minutes of an incredibly painful scene on BoJack Horseman, I find myself laughing again. And, and I think you guys are maybe exploring some of the frontiers, but like how, how, how much pain and humor can you get into the same frame? Let's, uh, let's actually play, uh, we've got a second clip here from BoJack Horseman. Uh, this is BoJack at a prom with some younger people explaining that prom isn't a required part of life, that the things they tell you are important as a kid aren't necessarily important or true. This prom sucks. You can say that again. I know. My flask got empty. Can we be back to the car so for more get for put in it? Or we could go back to the car and just leave. You can't just leave the prom. Of course you can. You're young. You can do whatever you want. That's what they never tell you until it's too late. You don't have to be here. Yeah, that's right. Society is everywhere. Society. Well, what else are we going to do? I'd say it's time to get down. Time to hit the town. Is that a lyric from that Do the Bojack song? Just get in the car. <laughs> so Bojack Horseman also, I mean, it explores 
some of the difficulties with fame, one of the premises of BoJack Horseman is the whole thing is set in Hollywood. The Hollywood sign is broken. The the D has fallen off uh, the Hollywood sign. And and a lot of this is about what's involved in being famous, uh, what's involved in being famous, particularly if you haven't done any of the other work. And essentially nobody in BoJack Horseman has done any of the other work. So everybody's either just a horrific narcissist uh, or, <laughs> or or BoJack himself is just falling apart part all the time, a victim both of his narcissism and his despair. Um, and for, first of all, I, I, is this, uh, Lisa, is this one of these things where people from L.A. say, how did you find out about that conversation? I mean, it might be a cat uh, or a person with a cat's head talking, but it seems like maybe these are conversations that really do take place in the entertainment industry. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, and the, the part- oh, we are just going to wind up. Yeah. Yeah, I think we are just going to wind up having a very bad connection with Lisa Hanawalt. So what I'm going to do instead, where I'm going to sort of slowly wrap up this show and just say, first of all, um, I do recommend if you haven't tried this out yet. And and you have to give it some time. Uh, the first season of, of BoJack Horseman kind of famously at the beginning wasn't necessarily grabbing its audience. Um, and so you have to get maybe halfway through that season before maybe you discover what I'm talking about. Or you could easily just begin with season two. And <laughs> But season two, I'm warning you, begins with this incredible primal wound. But it goes also very quickly uh, into uh, some very funny stuff. I should say that you probably, you might have been able to tell, that's Will Arnett uh, voicing the title character. Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad fame is his uh, roommate, Todd. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins is a Mr. Peanut Butter. Mr. Peanut Butter is a, yet another narcissist. He's a slightly more successful TV character uh, who he's like a golden retriever or something. He's something like that. Uh, Amy Sedaris plays Princess Carolyn, which inexplicably is the name of BoJack Horseman's uh, agent. And then there's like all these really great cameos by Lisa Kudrow and Stanley Tucci uh, and Keith Olbermann and Maria Bamford and Kristen Schaal. Um, and, and it is, you know, the, in some ways as we were working on this show, it did seem like, well, there, you can't do anything new with cartoons because they've everything has been done. I mean, er, everything has been tried in a really good and interesting way. But it turns out, yeah, you can do interesting things uh, and you can do new things. And I would say this is one of the new things that you can do, just going to this place that is extremely painful uh, and yet finding some really funny stuff to do with it. Uh, so I recommend BoJack Horseman. Uh, sorry we didn't have a better connection with Lisa Hanawalt, but uh, life goes on. Thanks to uh, to Josh Nalea for thinking up this show and producing it. Thanks to Wolfie for being on the board. 